You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, my, uh, my first thought is, man, I've aged. That's my first thought, but happy anniversary to our church. I had a lot of folks in the lobby at all three services afterwards uh, say happy anniversary to me, and my response is, you too. This is all of our celebration for what God has done. If you've been coming to this church for a month, they've been coming since the very beginning. Uh, this is the church that God has given us to hopefully make a big impact for Christ in Tallahassee, be passionate about Jesus, about who he is, what he's done for us, and I'm just a really grateful person. I truly am. Uh, it really is the Lord's work. Like I, I was telling someone, if, if we had to go teach a seminar on like how to start a church, we wouldn't know what to say. Uh, we just kind of went and trusted. That's not like some kind of fake humility. Uh, we just went forward, trusted the Lord. Uh, people came, brought their friends. We wanted to create a church that was serious about the Bible and serious about reaching Tallahassee and the nations. And by God's grace, hopefully we're on the way. Uh, so thanks. I'd also just want to... Um, just make, I just want to honor uh, just one certain family. There's many families that made this happen, but uh, we didn't start this church by ourselves. Um, it was alongside uh, Scott and Jen Simmons. And Scott's in the band. I had a chance to honor him at the last service. He's playing guitar today, but Jen's over there in the, in the front. Jen, will you stand up so we can say thank you for over 15 years of just faithfulness? Really grateful. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Before we jump in and pray together, I want to just uh, preview what we're going to talk about real quick here in the Stuck in the Middle series. Uh, we're talking about the reality that all the promises of God are already yes for us in Christ. Like our salvation is guaranteed right this moment, but the final realization of it, it will ultimately be when we are with the Lord, I and mean, ultimately when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Theologians refer to it as already, not yet. So in the meantime, we're kind of stuck in the middle between the two comings of Christ. The first coming, the advent, was Christmas, the Bethlehem manger, and when Jesus will come again for his church. So in the meantime, as living in a world that's not our own, we have to figure out how to live faithfully here in the middle. So let's pray together and we'll jump into our second week of this series. Father, we are thankful for our church. I'm thank you, I just thank you for 15 years of ministry. Never I could have imagined when we first sat down with a few folks and started praying about this that you would answer our prayer in a way that we never even comprehended. So I just ask for more of it. Lord, I ask that in your grace I can be the pastor of this church for a long time. And those who are here now will, will just continue to want to let their light shine in Tallahassee through this local church. We know we're not alone. We pray for all the churches in our city. Lord, I actually give churches a vision in this town to want to reach the community and be passionate about Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that be a theme and be a, an actual real thing in our city for years to come. And may you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our church, out of our town. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have been redeemed, all Christians have been redeemed by the cross of Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins, made new. Uh, the penalty for our sins was taken on by Jesus. He died in our place. But we await Christ's return and our final full redemption so in the meantime, as I said before I prayed, we here are stuck in the middle, caught in the middle, life in the middle, uh, but God doesn't see it as us being stuck. It's easy for us to think that way, but God sees us as being here purposefully for his glory and for his mission and to become like Jesus in the process uh, from when we, till we go home to be with him forever. So what's the current status we find ourselves living in and the surrounding culture and society around us uh, here in Tallahassee and in the United States? And I think what we see here is what I just call continual consumption, anxiety, and self-focus. Continual consumption, anxiety, and self-focus. Mark Sayers, an Australian pastor and author, uh, he says this about our current culture pursuing those things. He calls it an unsustainable life. An unsustainable life. In their recent book, Good Faith, uh, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme, 
uh, David Kinneman, who works for the Barnard Institute, and Gabe Lyons uh, shared their research citing that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Like, that's the point of life. Enjoy yourselves. 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. That's another way of saying do whatever makes you what? Happy. 86%. 91% agree with this statement to find yourself look within yourself. Now, as a people set apart by God to fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 tell us, talk about being stuck in the middle, being surrounded by a world that's greatest value is whatever you want your value to be, and to look within yourself to find that strength, to find the life you've always been looking for. Here we are as Christians, oftentimes more influenced by that mindset than we are the word of God. And notice it didn't say that 91% of unbelievers, it said people surveyed. So Christians are fully immersed and mingled into that same mindset. I read that you had the ability to talk to yourself at the rate of over a thousand words per minute. I didn't know that. You can talk to yourself at a thousand words per minute. So that means that there's a whole lot of time we have in our heads to lie to ourselves over and over again. To tell ourselves lies. Things we want to hear, things the world are messaging us. And here's what Augustine, the early church father, wrote. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. Like, that's who we're made for. We're made for you. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. But our world's mantra is you go find yourself, keep pursuing it, go find your happiness, find your peace, find your purpose. And here Augustine, again, he's just a man, he's not the Bible, but echoing a strong truth of the scriptures, that God, you have made us for yourself. There's a reason why we keep wandering and keep consuming and keep worrying about tomorrow and keep looking over our shoulder and it's because our hearts are restless until they find themselves in the Lord as they were created originally to be found before the fall happened and all got broken and messed up. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, for my people have committed a double evil. They've abandoned me. Notice God didn't say he abandoned them. They abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves crack cisterns that cannot hold water. So they believe, in other words, that they're the ones who are sufficient. They're not dependent upon me. They can make their own cisterns, not be dependent upon their creator, their giver of life, and these cisterns they're building for themselves, they don't work because ultimately they're not supposed to. One of the areas of Bible study that's important, we don't do very often here, is to study a theme in the Bible. Because certain times in the scriptures gives us a thematic understanding of a concept or an idea. And there's strong imagery there in that Jeremiah passage. And there's a theme throughout the Bible of this idea of food and drink. Of bread and of water. Of being filled and satisfied. It's throughout the storylines of the scriptures. These metaphors that God gives us to help us understand where we're missing the boat how our hearts are restless, how we're wandering in all the wrong places. And we're going to look at some of that, that theme today and unpack it a little bit here this morning. Afternoon, actually, it's 
Thank you for going to 1130 service, by the way. We need people to go to the service, so thank you. Side note. Jesus said this in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. What's the context here? There's a woman, and we're told that she has had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. So clearly, the values of this world are not working for her. She goes into Samaria, into the middle of town, and goes to a well, which would have been the culture at the time, to get water for her house or for, her, for herself, for her living whoever. And we're told that she goes at a certain time of day. Now, why would that be highlighted? Why would it matter what kind of day she went to the well? Well, the Bible author here is showing us, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here John is showing us this lady was going through it in her life. The reason why she went to the well at a non opportune time was that no one could see her and this wasn't because she was introverted and wanted to go to Trader Joe's at 8 a.m. when no one else was around and get her shopping done by herself in peace and quiet this was because she had had five husbands and the guy she was with now was not her husband so what did she feel as a result guilt shame like she was unworthy and what did she receive ridicule judgment condemnation, cast off. And here Jesus in his sovereignty just so happens to go to the well at the exact same time. As in the world might condemn you, but I am here to give you something better. And that better is me, who I am, what I've done. So Jesus says to her, hey, I know you're getting water for your well, but everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. She's probably like, duh. I mean, obviously. Like, you have to drink water again the next day or a few hours later, whatever it could be. It's the reason why we carry water bottles around and refill them all the time. But whoever drinks in the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. And she's probably going, is this guy about to invent a certain kind of water? that you drink it one time and never need water again? This is the craziest thing I have, my dreaming? Like, what's going on here? Well, Jesus isn't talking about actual physical water, like she assumes he is. Anyone would have assumed that. He says, in fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. In other words, we're not talking about physical water. The water that you're drinking from, the water of this world, guess what? You have to keep drinking from it over and over again because it does not satisfy you. We don't need to go through your spiritual resume. You already know it. But if you are with me, metaphor, if you drink from me, I will give you a water that will last for all eternity. Because Jesus himself would rise from the grave overturning death once and for all, that he would live a perfect life that we could never live, die a death that we deserved. And the result of that is life with God, yes, but also forgiveness of sin, no death penalty upon us, and now life that is eternal. What a word from Jesus to her. I couldn't imagine that moment would have been like. We're told she goes and runs off and tells everybody about what she's discovered and about what she knows. Remember, she's not ashamed anymore to face people. Why? Because one has come who has taken her guilt and shame away. And then we see in John chapter 6, just two chapters later, 
Jesus says this, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Like that's the great promise for us here in the middle. And he had just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a little bit of fish. And they're still hungry and want more food the next day like anyone would. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. So he was just living water, the actual true well, and now he says, I'm the bread of life. Here's this theme we're going through today. Your ancestors, give them a history lesson, ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. As in, you want bread, guess what? Remember your ancestors going through the wilderness? God gave them physical something to eat and they still died, even though they were fed. Why? Because eventually we all die. In other words, do we need food? Yes. Is it our greatest need? No. Because our greatest need is always spiritual first. And he goes, I'll tell you about a different kind of bread. And just like the woman at the well, they're probably like, a different kind of bread? Is this like red lobster cheese biscuits on steroids? Like, what is this different kind of bread? He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. It's like, wow, is this the fountain of youth bread version? Like St. Augustine fourth grade field trip, here we come, right? Like, is this what's happening here? He says, hold on, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the one that God has sent. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Not this temporary bread that's here today and gone tomorrow, the bread of this world. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he starts to point them to the gospel story that's coming, the cross that's coming his way. You'll be able to eat of me because I'm going to give myself for you. What a metaphor, what an image. See, on the bread of life is another way of saying without my death, you cannot live. Your ancestors, they died. You know, they had physical bread. Like, I am the food, Jesus is saying, that bread was very essential food at this time in that culture, and he's saying that he himself is the foundation of all things. Without his death, no one can live. Those who come to him again will never be hungry. Those who believe in him will never thirst again if through his death we live. My friend Trevin Wax wrote this about the text. He says, John describes many people turning away and rejecting Jesus after the bread speech. Many today will also find it too hard to swallow that Jesus is more than just one religious teacher in a diverse grocery store selection of beliefs. Yet Jesus' words remain true. Whoever eats the bread that he gives, his flesh will live eternally. So the open-minded person who wants to leave room for belief in other religious figures will starve to death because they're not eating the bread that gives life. But in our human nature, we don't want that. Like, we don't want that spiritual bread. Something in us, in our fallen state, wants to make our own bread. We don't want that spiritual drink. We might intellectually believe in it, but something in us wants to go find our own means of thirst to be quenched. Like, our sinful nature just kind of yells no at that offer. So instead, we have, again, our own personal water, that we've created, you can put your monogram on the side of it, and our homemade bread that we pulled out the figurative starter kit for whatever the bread you make is in your house, and what it results in is the cult of self-worship. That's what's happening around us right now. 
rather than being passionate about Jesus, the temptation is to be passionate about whatever it is we want in that moment that we think is going to make us happy. A new relationship, new job, better this, better that, more affection, more attention, more notoriety, whatever it could be. And it's keeping us in our thirst, and it's keeping us in our hunger. I'm trying to eat a little less bread right now, just in general. Um, I, and then I go out on a Friday night for dinner and mess all that up. But there's an old saying that if you eat bread, you look like bread. So that's why I'm trying to eat less bread. I don't want to look like bread. But here's the reality. We keep eating from the bread of this world. Guess what the result is? We're going to look like the bread of this world. And I don't mean physically. In terms of what worldviews we adopt, convictions we hold to, beliefs that are important to us, how we live our lives, how we treat people, how we parent, how we view marriage. Like all of these things, if we eat from the world's bread, is going to look like the world. Eat bread, look like bread. But if we eat from Christ, such an amazing metaphor in the scriptures, this eating and drinking idea. If we eat from Christ, then guess what we're ultimately going to look like? Christ. And guess what God is doing in us, according to Romans 8? Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He's making us more like Jesus. And besides self-worship, being rebellion against God, when we try to be our own source of truth that's popular today, we're going to slowly drive ourselves crazy. We're never going to be confident. We're never going to feel completely stable in our minds about what we believe. When we try to be our own sources of satisfaction, Look around the world. We become more miserable and more dissatisfied. Like, I don't mean this in a, I hope this doesn't come across as like a condescending way because that's not my heart behind this. But it's almost like you want to ask the world, like, how's it working for you? I mean, look at all the brokenness around us. I mean, look at all, look, look you know how many people are, are, are living the life of the woman at the well? It might not be a relationship thing. We could list a hundred different things. We, and we, probably all of us have dealt with it at some point. And the answer is like, how's it working? Like Mark Sayer said, it's not a sustainable life. So what do we do? We want more water. We want more bread. When here God is saying through these metaphors, it's available to you. Like, I am here. You're the one who's moved. I have it. I talk a lot about, if you've been here for a little while, you'll hear me probably every month and a half talk about juicy fruit gum. Because it's my favorite gum, but also because I think it's really important for us to understand this, to understand the whole food metaphor. And if you chew, some of y'all heard this before, like 17 times, but if you get a pack of Juicy Fruit Gum in a yellow package, it's like the best three seconds of gum you've ever had in your life. And then the flavor goes away, just like that. Like when I, I like waste my money on it because I'll eat all the whole pack of gum in one drive in the car. You just keep popping more in. I have this big old wad, look like, look like I'm from Sop Choppy or something. You know, some big old wad, you know, in, in the side of my mouth because I just got to keep popping it in because the flavor goes away, the flavor goes away, the flavor goes away. And that's what God's showing us here in the scriptures. He said to the woman, you're going to drink from a well and you're going to thirst again. You're going to eat this bread and still be hungry. See, when we become our own standard of goodness, like we think that we're the ones that define what's good and that we're the example of good, we become self-righteous, judgmental. When we seek self-glory, you know what happens? We actually receive a fake glory. Because we were never designed to receive glory. Appreciation, sure. Encouragement, absolutely. Gratitude, yeah. But not glory. 
We were never designed to do that. And self-glory is always going to wreck things, even if you don't see it at the time. Now, why is this the case? Why, if we we think that we're the standard of goodness, do we become self-righteous? Why, the more we think that we are the ones that are the standard of satisfaction and try to get satisfied, why are we more dissatisfied? Like, why, why, when we seek glory, is it a fake glory? The answer is actually really simple. And probably the least deep thing you'll ever hear. You are not God. And I'm not either. You are not God. And I don't know anyone who would actually claim they are but functionally, how much do we often act like that? In an academic town, in a government town, how often is it to function as if we're the ones that know? We're the ones that have all the answers. We were never meant to trust in, be satisfied in, or be captivated by ourselves. We were never designed for that. So what's the result of us doing what we were not designed to do? Continual consumption, anxiety, and self-focus, which again, Sayers says, leads to an unsustainable life. And here's what I want to add to what he said. It should be unsustainable. It should be miserable. Like when you go outside of the design, that's how it's supposed to be. When you don't do marriage as God designed, guess what? It's, it's going to be miserable. Now, in a fallen world, even doing marriage in God's eyes the right way, you're still going to have issues because we're sinners saying I do to each other. But doing things God's way, your dating relationships, your, your parenting, how you approach work, how you approach your employees, how you approach your boss. We go on and on and on. It's supposed to be broken if we're not doing it the way that God has called us to. But I want to show you what he offers us instead. Matthew 11. All things that Jesus talking have been entrusted to me by my Father. There's a Trinitarian explanation here. Jesus' authority as the Son one God, three persons. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal to him. Now, based on him just saying that and declaring those things to be true about himself, here's what he leads them to. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And you know what I'm going to give you? Not a new list of things to do to make yourself more spiritual not a reminder of all the things you've done wrong, not how you can better work your way to heaven. I'm going to give you rest. He doesn't mean taking a nap. It happens in about an hour and a half, right, Sunday afternoon? That's not what he's talking about. He means that in him, you actually can finally take a deep breath because everything you've been created for is reconciled in Jesus to know God, to worship God, to give him glory. It's really taking the drink of eternal water and going, it's taking the food of the bread of life and going, I feel, I feel filled. I feel full. I feel satisfied. I don't need a box for leftovers. Like, it's here now. Rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. I mean, how many people in our world, probably oftentimes you and me included, need rest for our souls? Because they're weary, because they're broken. But something in us just says, well, I just have more of this and more of that. And my response to that is, you already have all you need, and his name is Jesus. 
And that is when you can enjoy the good things God has given you in this life. It's called common grace. The good th- God has given us good things to enjoy, but those things were never meant to be water and bread for us. Jesus is the one who is that for us. And I love these last words of this passage, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light. Like my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Only if you believe there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus can you actually embrace that verse. Because now as a believer, you don't come to him scared, you come to him accepted. You come to him part of his family. Hebrews 2 says he's not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. Isn't that amazing? See, Carl Truman wrote this, the church protests the wider culture by offering a true vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. And what's part of that? That we are not the source of glory. If we're going to have a lasting counter-cultural effect on a society that has fallen into the cult of self and hunger and thirst fulfilling and created things, we have to be the people who say we're going to recenter our lives around Jesus. Recenter. Where he actually is the point. We're going to actually fix our eyes on him. We're going to actually believe what he said is true. Thaddeus Williams, so I think, said this. This quote's been around and circulated forever. But he said that we were made to revere someone infinitely more awesome than ourselves. We were created to be worshipers. And that didn't change at the fall when sin entered into the world. It just meant we started worshiping in the wrong places. We were made to revere someone infinitely more awesome than ourselves. And I also like this from John Piper, and I appreciate this. Piper has a lot of influence on me, and I I appreciate this. He says, we should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Again, common grace. God's not a grump. You ever be around Christians, or you ever around Christians act like God's some sort of grump? Like, God's not grumpy. Instead, We should seek to intensify this longing and nurse it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. The problem is we buy the lies that that deep, enduring satisfaction is found in the things of this world that are passing away and will never actually love us back. We have to earn their love. We have to keep going back to it over and over again. And Piper concludes that quote by saying, The deepest emotion during happiness is found only in God, not from God, but in God. Not from God as in not in some sort of genie that's like sprinkling blessings out of the air, but actually life with God himself. God created happiness. Why would he not want his children to have it? But in a broken world, we redefine the word. We miss the point. We find it in the wrong places. No, ultimate happiness is a good thing, but it's found in the Lord and who he is, and his promises, and what's eternal. That's hard for us in the first world. I'm not not one of those people that bemoans the first world. I I can't stand when Christians like guilt trip people and shame people for, I I I also don't believe in poverty theology. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I don't believe in poverty theology, neither one. I, I believe that God gives us good gifts to enjoy that are just not ultimate. I think God calls us to be generous. I think God calls us to love him over and over again more than the world. But in the first world where we live in, it can be really difficult. 
Because the messaging all around us all the time is you, 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 you. You be a better you. You do what makes you happy. You do this. And our brothers and sisters who are in jail right now for their faith in North Korea, they're not perfect either. But they're not, imagine going to North Korea right now and talking to a Christian in a jail cell and going, hey, I just want to bring you a message from Joel Osteen that he wants you to live your best life now. Can you imagine that? They would like punch you in the face in the name of Jesus, right? Or say, God's got a great purpose for your life. You just got to discover it. Achieve your destiny tomorrow. You know, it's like, that. act like God gives us ruby red slippers and kick them together and make a wish. It's like, no. You know what they'll tell you is why they're willing to go to jail for their faith? Because they believe that, again, they're not perfect. They're humans just like us. You know what they believe? That Jesus is the greatest treasure. We have to be careful we wish that upon ourselves. Like we pray, God, what a great prayer. God, help me to see that you're the greatest treasure, that you're the greatest blessing. That's almost like a scary kind of prayer if I'm being honest. Because I'm a first world Christian. It's not a bad thing, but it can be a complicated thing. I can think I'm all in for Christ and passionate about Jesus and really I've kind of created this Western idea of him that requires not very much. I want to be a church that believes that Jesus is the Bible, where you say, because of who you are and what you've done, open hands, here's my life. Here's my life. So I want to close this psalm. That food metaphor is still happening here. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he rescued me from all my fears. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. Those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Why? Because the greatest blessing of God is actually God. Come, children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. You know what happens is our fear, as in our awe, our reverence, our worship of God, our recentering our lives around God grows. As the old song says, the things of earth grow strangely dim. They lose their hype in the light of his glory and grace. They'll never just lose their hype on their own. When we shine the light of the gospel on it, oh man, the things of earth go strangely dim. I want to be a church that keeps shining the light of Jesus against all the competing ideologies of this world that lead us to more thirst and more hunger rather than to Christ himself. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. I thank you for that theme of the scriptures, this whole idea of thirst and hunger, but ultimately tasting and seeing that you are good. Help us to do that. On our own, we have really bad taste buds. So we need to see that you are good. And I ask the Lord to believe more and more the gospel. Our affections for you will grow as we're aware of how much you love us what Jesus endured for us. For those in this room or maybe you're the story of the woman at the well or they're weary, they're burdened, Lord, let them drink from living water today. Or for those that are finding their answers in the things of this world that are still just trying to do whatever they can to get whatever it is they're looking for, I just ask you, help us all to see those things that wind up empty. They're temporary. They're juicy fruit gum. Let us eat and drink from you. We're grateful for that act of grace that you are the one who came to us. We could not work our way to you. You have come to us, and I thank you for that. Let that be the message we continue to proclaim 
as we go forward as a church family in this next era ahead. Lord, use us for your grace. Use us for your glory. I am thankful for all those you have put together to call City Church home. Lord, we're thankful for this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the good news of who Jesus is and how the things of this earth grow strangely dim, more and more aware of who God is and what he's done for us. Hey, we've done this together, buddy. Thankful for you. Lead us, man.